Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. Of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. A reminder for those here in-house, we would ask a courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at Heritage.org. Leading our discussion today is Luke Coffey, who serves as director of our Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. He directs our research for the Middle East, Africa, Russia, and the former Soviet Union, as well as the Western Hemisphere and the Arctic region. Any part of the world you don't cover, except Latin America, where, Latin America, <laughs> Latin America where it's comfortable. Before joining Heritage, he serves, served as the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense as singer, Senior Special Assistant to then British Defense Secretary Liam Fox. He has also worked on defense and security issues in the House of Commons for the Conservative Party. <coughs> his work in British politics followed his service to the United States as a commissioned Army officer stationed in Italy with the Army's Southern European Task Force. Please join me in welcoming Luke Coffey. Luke. Thank you, John, for the introduction, and welcome everyone here to the Heritage Foundation. After hearing John introduce me, you're probably wondering, what the hell is this guy doing moderating a panel about uh, disaster relief? And I can tell you, you can blame Jim Carafano, who, <laughs> who I'm filling in for today. No, but it is my pleasure. I mean, this is fantastic uh, work that, that the Heritage team has done with this, and um, I think we're going to have a, a really good event Thank you again for coming and braving this weather uh, this morning to get here. Um, as you know, 2017 saw several uh, serious hurricanes strike the United States. Harvey, Irma, and Maria left destruction in their wakes requiring massive response, cleanup, and recovery efforts. The different elements of the U.S. government response together with U.S. civil society and private individuals were called up to meet this challenge. With multiple large star storms hitting one right after the other, the ability to respond was tested in many different ways, and today um, we are here to examine some of these ways and see how we can learn lessons for future uh, uh, improvement. Today we have a panel of experts um, and a fantastic keynote speaker after the panel discussion to discuss the hurricane season and what came out of it. Uh, all of our panelists contributed to this roughly 18,000-word long um, a detailed report with uh, almost a dozen recommendations. So I, I, I highly recommend you take a copy if you don't have one already just outside um, on your way out. And, uh, and this is sort of the, the cornerstone, I think, of the debate here in Washington, D.C. about how the U.S. Uh, responded to these hurricanes and what we can do 
better in the future and what we should sustain in the future. Our first panelist is David and Sarah. David uh, is a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. He specializes in homeland security issues, including cyber, counterterrorism, and immigration policy. David researches and writes uh, for the Heritage Foundation various policy papers, issue briefs, backgrounders, and he contributes to a number of news and media outlets on a variety of homeland security subjects and topics. As part of his work, he maintains the Heritage Foundation's timeline on Islamist terrorist attacks and plots against the U.S. homeland since 9-11. What are we up to, David? Uh, 102. 102. So that, you should Google that and read that report as well. That's very good. Uh, David has testified before Congress and participates in private briefings as well as in the public space with public debates and public events to discuss national security issues facing the United States. Our next speaker will be Diane Katz. Diane, uh, who has analyzed and written on public policy issues for more than two decades, is a research fellow on re in regulatory policy at the Heritage Foundation. A veteran journalist and a policy analyst from Detroit, Diane joined Heritage's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies in August of 2010. She previously was uh, Director of Risk, Environment, and Energy Policy for three years at the Fraser Institute, an independent policy research and educational organization in Canada. Diane has a very distinguished career in journalism in her own right, and today her research and commentary is widely published, and she has also testified before Congress and several state legislators, legislative bodies. <clears throat> Our next speaker will be Steve Bucci. Steve, who served America for three decades as a U.S. Army, Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official, is a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. His research and writing at Heritage focuses on cybersecurity, military special operations, and defense support for civil authorities. From 2013 through 2015, Bucci was the director of the Allison Center, and he joined the think tank as a senior research fellow for defense and homeland security in April of 2012. In addition to a very successful career in the private sector, Steve served as deputy assistant of De deputy assistant secretary of defense for homeland defense and defense support to civil authorities during the Bush administration. This followed a very distinguished and gallant career in U.S. Army Special Forces with deployments to Eastern Africa, South Asia, and the Middle East. Our final speaker, who used to be with us at Heritage but left in January, is Salim Firth. Salim is now the Senior Research Fellow for the State and Local Policy Program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he studies regional, urban, and macroeconomic trends and policies. Prior to joining uh, the Mercatus Center, Salim researched and explained how public policy affected economic growth and individual opportunity as research fellow in macroeconomics at the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis. His economic research has covered fiscal policy, international economics, labor market trends, the cost of living, and economic mobility. His research and commentary is widely published and he has also testified before Congress. So after this panel discussion, um, we'll have time for some questions, uh, hopefully. And then at 12, our keynote speaker, Dr. Daniel Kanuski, 
um, will give an address. Uh, Daniel, I'll quickly introduce him now briefly, and then when he comes, I'll give a proper introduction. But, but Dr. Kanuski is the Deputy Administrator for uh, Protection and National Preparedness at FEMA. So stick around for that as well. So now I will turn it over to David. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Luke. Um, yeah, thank you all for being here today. Um, uh, we are uh, doing this panel uh, to discuss, as we point out, this, this new report that we put out. Um, in fact, it's not even online yet. It's, this is where you can get it. The hard copy uh, it should come out sometime here today. Um, and this report, we try to really cover as many different aspects of um, disaster response, disaster recovery, looking at the different storms, um, and to really try to uh, – spread a wide net to cover all these different topics. And so I'm just going to give a brief rundown of what's in the report and then focus in a little bit on um, some congressional issues that I see with um, the Disaster Relief Fund and just general spending on uh, uh, disaster funding. And then uh, each of the guests will continue to take on sp specific issues within the report as well. Um, so one of the things that we, we noticed in uh, and we've noticed this for a while is that Disaster relief funding um, is something which, uh, especially whenever we have one of these big storms, inevitably it gets wrapped up into larger um, supplemental bills that uh, tend to ignore you know most basic you know rules of fiscal discipline, um, and it results in ex large amounts of extra uh, uh, pork being added in. And we've seen this not just in this storm, but we've seen it in past storms with Sandy and Katrina. Um, and it's, the it's I think it's the, the, the result of, I think, poor uh, planning, mostly from on, on the congressional side, to appropriately um, uh, provide enough funding, A, so that FEMA has the funding to respond to these disasters, but then also um, in terms of uh, looking at ways to fundamentally fix the way that we do disaster relief funding. And so that's where we get into some of the wor work that I specifically did in this report. Um, and looking at the what I view as is two main problems with um, the disaster relief fund, the main pot of money um, that we use to respond to disasters, um, and, and this this is largely brought up, uh, two problems I think are largely found in um, the Stafford Act. The Stafford Act um, is the act which largely creates or is sort of the modern underpinning of a lot of our disaster relief work. Um, and, but there's two I think fundamental problems with how disaster, the Stafford Act sort of allocates funding. Um, the first is that um, once a, a disaster has been declared, a federalized disaster has been declared, um, the states tend to get at least 75% of their funding for that response and recovery um, from the federal government. Um, and that's in the statute, so it's, it's up it's at least 75%, um, can be more. Um, and the problem with that is that there's a, it's a lot of money for disasters, and so there's a big incentive for states to qualify as a federal disaster. If a disaster gets, you know, if, 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 if a disaster is declared a federal disaster worthy of, of you know, FEMA involvement, um, then FEMA is going to get involved, but they're going to pay for most of the tab of, of, of that response. Um, the other problem is that there's a fairly low threshold for, for meeting that requirement. In some states, uh, a couple, a couple uh, million dollars in costs um, can reach the, the threshold, I think it's about one point five dollars per capita um and so you when you have a fairly low threshold for getting disaster relief funds and then the magnitude the amount of funds you're getting is fairly significant there's incentive i think for states to try to get more disasters um, declared because it means more money coming their way to help them re rebuild and so uh we've seen disasters over time since the stafford act was first declared uh, in the 80s um, the disasters, the number of disasters have, have steadily risen. 
um, uh, over time. And so one of our concerns is that states are responding monetary incentive um, to um, to the way the Stafford Act is currently set up, and they are not as prepared as they ought to be because there is a fair amount of federal funding that is available and it's fairly easy for them to get that funding. Um, that is something which we're looking to reverse. We want states and local governments to be more prepared, not not less. Um, and there's a, a, a numerous different ways I think we could do this. Um, and it's also not important just for the states and local governments, but it's also, I think, better for FEMA. If FEMA is Focusing really on those big disasters, their 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 their, mon their money and their their time and their resources are focused on fewer larger disasters. Then their response will be will, will be better for those big storms when they're needed most. Similarly, by having better prepared state and local governments, which have larger rainy day funds or have invested more ahead of time because they know that they're on the hook for more disasters, um, these state and local governments will also be more prepared regardless of the size of the storm. If it's a small storm and they're better prepared, well, it's great. They can handle it themselves. If it's a larger storm, well, still, it's great that we have a state and local government that is more prepared than it is today. Um, and so some of the recommendations we have in this report look at um, a better budgeting process in the disaster um, uh, field so that, A, we're not using supplementals as often as we have to because these supplementals are oftentimes filled with more, there's actually more, usually more money in there for projects that aren't the Disaster Relief Fund than there actually is money for the Disaster Relief Fund, whether it be money for the NFIP, whether it be money for community grants or, or other programs that are not specifically related specifically to the Disaster Relief Fund. Um, and so one of our rec another set of our recommendations are to change the criteria by which a state or local government can get that funding. So make it harder for them to get that funding. So raise the, the standard by which a state or local government can receive uh, a federalized disaster can be declared. Um, but then also uh, tweak the way that we dole out money. So it's, it shouldn't be that, you know, at one point you get zero FEMA dollars, and then if you get over this threshold, then 75% of the FEMA dollars are uh, dollars come from FEMA. I think it should be a, a, you know, a curve that by which if a disaster is declared, um, okay, for a smaller disaster, you get 25% of your dollars from FEMA. For a larger disaster, you get 75% of, of the dollars from FEMA. So make it more that the state or local government has more uh, skin in the game, regardless of the size of the disaster, to incentivize them to prepare more ahead of time. Um, some of the other things that are in the report um, include a discussion of uh, energy policy, and uh, and I know we don't have a panelist up here that's going to be talking explicitly about that, but focusing on the importance of energy um, energy policy that has a robust um, energy market that is able to be uh, resilient um, against the effects of storms. We saw that especially this is especially important, um, especially in we see that first in, in Harvey and all the oil refineries. Um, that, that are uh, in and around the, the, the Houston and, and the Texas coast there. And then similarly, the electric grid um, and the issues that are happening with Maria and the problem of having a uh, non-competitive market in the electrical grid and the, uh, the result that that has had on uh, the, re the recovery and the rebuilding efforts has definitely slowed that. And one of the things we're looking for is a, a significant um, – uh, increase in competition and reduction in regulations on the way that that market operates because it results in uh, uh, poor infrastructure and ultimately it's making it harder, I think, to rebuild and making it so that the, when the next storm hits, the, the, the uh, will be in a similar situation where it's taking months, if not longer, to, re to repair the dilapidated uh, old infrastructure that undergirds the grid. 
Um, other things in here also, some other things that are also included in this report look at on um, the importance of civil society. Um, I know um, some of the things which FEMA has actually recently done is to um, make it so that um, religious organizations can um, participate in um, the, the FEMA um, can get funds from, from FEMA in terms of rebuilding just like any other um, organization that's been affected um, by a disaster for a long time. That wasn't the case, but FEMA has recently decided to say that well, if, you know, if there's some, if you're a, a local religious organization that has been hit by the results of the disaster, you also can qualify for um, for grants in the same way that uh, a business down the street would otherwise. And so that's, I think, a significant um, improvement, uh, but also emphasizing the importance of those civil society organizations to the long-term rebuilding of the communities. Um, it's FEMA and, and, and you know, uh, the National Guard are very important in responding, especially in the short term, but ultimately it is businesses and local community groups that are going to be there for the long term and have to be play a central role in rebuilding these uh, uh, these communities. And so anything we can do to support those organizations and highlight their work is, I think, very important to our, our future uh, our future disaster uh, response and, and resilience. And so with that, I think I'll turn over to Diane. Good morning. Thanks for coming. I'm going to talk about the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, with respect to Hurricanes Harvey, Irma and Maria, uh, the program performed exactly as it was designed to do. It incurred $17 billion in debt to taxpayers. It paid to rebuild properties repeatedly destroyed by previous storms. And it promoted development in areas at high risk of flooding, thus ensuring worse destruction from future storms. And so all of which is to say that um, this is a program that is in deep trouble and in need of, of a complete, well, I think, phase-out. Despite a $16 billion bailout in October, the National Flood Insurance Program remains debt-ridden and dysfunctional. No amount of tinkering is going to fix it, even though Congress from you know now and then attempts it. Um, its insolvency is a consequence of its architecture. The rate structure was specifically designed to be actuarially unsound, that is to subsidize premiums. And um, to, it doesn't generate sufficient income or revenue to fully cover losses. Even before Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, the NFAP was $25 billion in debt. Congress and the President, like I said, approved a $16 million bailout last fall, but subsequent payouts have left the program with a current debt of about $20 million, uh, billion, excuse me, that's on top of um, that bailout, that $16 billion bailout. There's little likelihood that NFIP will ever return to solvency. Uh, the annual shortfall runs about $1.4 billion, according to the Congressional Budget Office, and debt service runs hundreds of millions of dollars each year. About half of that shortfall reflects the difference between premium revenue, that is what the um, policyholders pay, and the cost of actually servicing policies and paying claims. You know, given that, any private uh, insurer would be out of business, you know, yesterday if that was the way that they were operating. And in addition, more than one-third of the premiums are paid to private companies to service policies. And that uh, represents an enormous administrative overhead uh, um, for, the, for the NFIP. 
Congress created subsidized premiums to encourage enrollment. At the time, they thought that um, there was too much ad hoc spending on disasters, and therefore, if they create an insurance program, uh, that would that would facilitate a, um, a much more controlled method of, of um, covering disaster um, disaster costs. Obviously, that isn't the case. Um, many of the premiums for the highest risk properties fall short. And because property owners do not bear the full costs of their flood risk, they're more likely to locate in uh, areas of um, high risk of flooding and less likely to undertake preventive measures. Simply put, they're not bearing the costs. You are. And so, therefore, there's much more likelihood that they're going to build in higher risk areas. The problem is exacerbated by the lack of accurate flood risk maps by which the agency sets insurance rates. The way, the way this works is FEMA maps um, flood risk and in various zones and classifies it according to risk and then bases premiums on that risk. But only 49% of the mapping is designated as valid, meaning that the map adequately identifies the level of flood risk. Therefore, the other 51%, obviously, then, is invalid, and therefore the, the rates on which the, um, the premiums are set is going to be questionable. Another 11% is designated as unverified, which, is, which means it's deficient in some manner. Either it doesn't, it fails to adequately capture the risk, um, more than likely there's greater risk than there is you know, uh, premium revenue, um, and in some cases, although probably small, some pro property owners may be paying more than they should based on their actual risk. In addition, 39% is unknown. So for 39% of the, the um, maps that FEMA uses to set risks, um, you know, the condition is uh, of the, uh, the, uh, the um, you know, whether it's accurate, it's unknown. They simply don't know. The government's unduly prolonged mapping products, um, I'm sorry, process, produces maps that are outdated even by the time that, that they're, that they're um, completed. It can, be, it can take 10 years or more um, pr to produce you know, certain maps. Congress approved more rational rates in 2012. They include a phase-in of, of rates, higher rates to cover actuarial costs. Uh, but then they reneged two years later um, on the, on the pre under pressure from realtors and local and local governments um, who thought that that property owners shouldn't pay for the, the, the their coverage of their own property um, shouldn't pay you know the actual costs uh, even though these 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 adjustments these phase ins over time uh, for most people were relatively small uh, the realtors, in particular, are um, you know, very adamant that rates um, stay where they are, if not get even greater subsidy. Um, the National Fund Insurance Program was reauthorized most recently on March 23rd, and it is reauthorized through July 31st. So it's no longer on the same timetable as the federal budget. Now, some claim this will force Congress to adopt reforms. Um, I don't, we'll see. They've been trying, you know, the House has been working on reform packages for um, 
you know, since four, 2014, we haven't seen much. Um, and the Senate has been even, you know, more recalcitrant. But the absolute solution is to phase it out. Um, it, it's structurally unsound, and so this tinkering on the margins really isn't going to fix, fix the problems. Now, the, you know, my, my ultimate solution is to go to a, a private um, insurance market. Some people say that these insurers would cherry pick property owners and only take the, the, the lowest risk properties. Um, but I, there's evidence on, in some, um, you know, controlled um, experiments that, that that's, not, that's not the case in Florida in particular. Um, they've been, you know, there's been a project to test out private insurers and they've been not cherry picking which was a terrible way to say it, but uh, nonetheless. <coughs> also, the fact that FEMA has started to um, purchase reinsurance from the private market, and both from reinsurers and through capital markets, and the fact that uh, the capital markets are willing to um, reinsure FEMA uh, is proof to me that uh, private insurance is feasible. That is, uh, insurers could undertake to cover um, higher risk properties and protect themselves through reinsurance. Now, some would say, well, FEMA can get a better priced reinsurance because they're backed by the federal government, which is true. But it's also true that FEMA is reinsuring total risk nationwide, which is pretty substantial, um, whereas private insurers would be taking pockets of risk, much smaller pockets of risk, and therefore, um, the rate difference would, would probably not be um, extreme or onerous. So that's, that's just, a, you know, the broad overview. There, there's a lot more specifics, obviously, in the report about how, how uh, the NFIP works and so on. Um, but, you know, it, it clearly, in the past, we've called for reforms, and, and given the um, failure of Congress to institute meaningful reforms. We're at the point now where we're just saying, forget the reforms. We need to do away with this program, phase it out, go to private insurers. Thank you. Thanks, Diane, for that overview, somewhat depressing. Uh, but hopefully someone will read your recommendations and figure out a way to sort out this mess. Uh, Steve? Okay. Uh, I'm going to talk about a system that, that actually did work fairly well in, in this situation. We're going to talk about the National Guard. Just for a review for folks, the National Guard operates in, at any given time on one of three statuses. State active duty, where they work for the governor and the state pays for it. Federal active duty, or Title X status, where they work for the federal government and the federal government pays for it. At that point, they're exactly like active duty troops. There's no difference other than they have a funnier patch on their sleeve. Um, <laughs> that none of the guys on active duty recognize. And then in the middle, there's one called Title 32. That's they're under the command and control of the governor, and they're funded by uh, the federal government. <clears throat> and uh, another aspect that you need to understand about is a thing called EMAC, the Emergency Management uh, Assistance Compact. This is an agreement between all the governors uh, in, in the country and all the other governors where they agree to help one another, basically. And this is managed by the National Guard Bureau, the, the federal level or national level organization that manages the National Guard. They don't own the National Guard. They, they belong to the governors. But in EMAC, they 
basically figure out what needs to be done. On, for every state in the union, they have a spreadsheet that says, you know, what are the likely events to happen in that state? Obviously, hurricanes don't occur in every state. Tornadoes don't occur in every state. So they lay out the events for each of those states. And for hurricanes, you get like a category one hurricane, a two, a three, a four, a five. And they lay out everything that's needed for the National Guard to properly respond to help their state get through that, whatever that particular scenario is. And then they lay out everything that that state owns in the National Guard structure, and they identify gaps. In some cases, states have a lot of what they need, you know, things like high water vehicles, uh, communication systems, maybe, you know, drone units to, to do uh, rescue searches and things. And they identify all the gaps, and if there are any gaps at all, they then figure out on any given day of the year who is going to provide those assets that the state doesn't own. Not just in general that, yeah, we need a couple of these kind of units. They pick the state of Alabama is going to provide to the state of Florida two extra high water truck companies. And as on a day-to-day -day basis, as those things fluctuate because somebody goes on deployment or a unit gets gets its status changed, who's in that matrix changes. And not only do they say which state's going to provide that unit, they tell the unit that they are on the hook for that. They put them on alert. And every day, there's algorithms that help them do this, but there's also a lot of people sitting there nugging through this on any given day so that you can go to the National Guard Bureau today, and they have that matrix for every state in the union and the territories so that people know and are alerted and know who's going to respond if, if a particular event occurs. Now, that's all background stuff. Uh, but in this case, we had these three hurricanes come. It was literally a perfect storm, if you will, perfect storm of storms, uh, uh, for the, the response of the uh, different states. Now, Texas got hit first. Texas has an enormous National Guard capability. They have a bigger National Guard than most countries have militaries. Uh, on top of it, they have a thing called the State Guard. Right? It's part of it, the generic term for these kind of guys is State Defense Force. They're militia. They're trained. They wear uniforms when they're, they're called to duty. They only work for the governors. The federal government has no ties to them whatsoever. They're funded. Uh, you know, not all the states have them, but uh, Texas in particular has a really huge one. So they had uh, an incredible number of assets to draw upon. Uh, they also routinely work with the other disaster management assets in the state. They are really locked at the hip uh, in Texas. And, and it really showed that they had the scale to deal with this situation. Now, they still got help from other, other National Guard units around the country, for specific uh, assets, but Texas handled this extraordinarily large, you remember Harvey kind of sat there and stayed for a while. The flooding was much worse than anybody anticipated. Uh, so they, they took care of that, uh, mostly internally, but they did get a lot of help from the other folks. Now you flip over to Florida, Florida has a decent sized National Guard capability, nowhere near as big as Texas, uh, and they have no state defense force. 
So they had a lot fewer National Guard assets to call upon. They availed themselves a little more so, you know, percentage-wise, of the assets from around the country that came in to help. It helped that a lot of the assets that had been alerted for Harvey were still on alert when, when uh, the next one occurred. So they kind of just shifted, yeah, we thought we were going to go to Texas, now, now we're going to Florida. And, and again, the National Guard Bureau, Bureau kind of pivoted on the fly to make that happen. Uh, now, Florida has more experience dealing with hurricanes than anybody else. So their state response capabilities and, and organization is, you know, second to none in the country just because they get hit more. So they, you know, while Texas leaned on their scale, Florida leaned on their experience. And, and it paid off for both of those uh, states. Now, Puerto Rico and, and the Virgin Islands didn't do quite as well for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, President Trump's much maligned comment that, well, you know, it's an island. It's hard to get to. Uh, people laughed at him for saying that. But, you know, it's true. It's really hard to get heavy assets all the way to an island. They don't move instantaneously. If you got to put them on a ship, it takes a while to get there. It's a lot easier to drive stuff down the interstate uh, somewhere in the continental United States. So uh, in addition to that, Puerto Rico, uh, you know, per capita and per size, took a much bigger infrastructure hit than anybody else. They had the least uh, resilient infrastructure of, of these three target areas, and they got hammered. You know, they lost roads, and there's, there's a lot of places in Puerto Rico you can't get to unless you go down one road, and that road disappeared. So it was very difficult. Uh, a lot of the um, uh, guardsmen actually got isolated. They were out in their village. They couldn't get to their units. In some cases, they couldn't even contact them to tell them to come to the unit. So I'm sure they all knew that they were going to be needed in there. So they lost a lot of their structure because people just couldn't get there. And then, and, and this is an aspect that applies across the Guard, a lot of Guardsmen, and the women as well, their civilian jobs are also critical in this kind of thing. They're local policemen, they're local EMTs. Uh, so those folks many times are exempted from call-ups because the, the general theory is it makes more sense to leave those people where they are and let them work in their civilian functions and pull them out and move them to wherever their specific guard unit is going to go in, in the state. All of that was very disruptive uh, to the response. Uh, there was, uh, it was difficult. They had, interestingly, for people that live out there in the water, they had a lot less experience with dealing with damage of this magnitude. They had weathered storms before, but they hadn't had one of, of this magnitude. And uh, additionally, their leadership, the state leadership, was somewhat divided in, in how they thought they should go. The, the mayor of, of San Juan was at odds with the governor because she wants to run for governor. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of that kind of nonsense that should not have occurred that did, and that slowed them down as well. The, the last one, just as an add I'm going to talk about real quickly, is what I'm calling civilian ad hoc response. And these were, if you recall, particularly in te the Texas response, these guys were Team Rubicon, the Cajun Navy. These are just citizens who said, there's a problem over there. I got a big, giant truck with tires that are about six foot tall that can drive through anything. 
I'm going to go over there and help. And they did. Other guys had big bass fishing boats and air boats and all this stuff uh, that was real helpful in a flood. So they went out there and uh, just showed up and started helping people. Eventually, uh, FEMA and the other folks started getting them sort of looped in and, and coordinating. There's some real famous footage of, of several of these big monster trucks pulling a National Guard high-water vehicle, you know, one of these really expensive Army vehicles, out of the water that had gotten stuck. And this civilian pickup truck was able to pull it out because the engines are kind of powerful in most of those things. Uh, Florida had a little of that, but not, not uh, near as much as in Texas and Puerto Rico. You know, people were doing as much as they could do locally, but there's apparently not as many monster trucks running around Puerto Rico as there are in Texas and Louisiana. Um, just real quickly, takeaways. Uh, maintaining training and experience in the Guard is, is key. Being really good at what you do is beneficial. Uh, preserving a robust structure in the Guard, so having enough people is, is essential. So you, it's not just being good, it's also helpful to be big. Uh, and then uh, you really, we think you should encourage the development of state defense forces. That's a good solution for this kind of event because it gives you a degree of depth in your response that is not otherwise there. Uh, it saves you from having to reach out and get help from other people if, if you've got that kind of capability. Uh, the, a real key is expanding the cooperation between the Guard and the civilian response elements in a state. They, they need to do as much training and rehearsals as possible because in, in the words of, of a general back when I was still in the Pentagon, he said, you know, when you're standing around a big hole or you're in the big crisis, it's a little late to start handing out business cards. You, you literally need to know each other and know who's going to respond. And then the last one is, is we need to leverage these civilian assets that are out there. Uh, the, you know, the fact that someone doesn't work for the government, either the federal, state, or local government, doesn't mean they can't help. But you don't really want them out there freelancing. You want them as part of a, a cohesive effort. And uh, Americans have a lot of assets that they're willing to use to help their neighbors. And uh, that, that was sort of a, a wonderful lesson I think we all learned. And, and we need to, to capture that and use it. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Uh, sir? Thank you. It's good to be back here at Heritage. Uh, I'm going to talk about economic resiliency and the role that uh, regulation can play in uh, hampering that and, and some specific laws that the federal government and state governments should think about um, scrapping or revising in the, the context of thinking about preparing for disasters. Uh, so I'm going to go back before 2017. In 2014, there was a, just a series of winter storms that left a lot of ice on roads across the Northeast. And uh, the largest salt depot in New Jersey was basically out of salt. Um, New Jersey has a lot of port facilities. And they import road salt. It's one of the biggest bulk imports in the northeastern U.S., in case you haven't noticed uh, driving your vehicle around the northeastern U.S. We have a lot of this stuff. We put it on the roads every winter. Um, but they were running low, and the, the company that uh, ran this site said, well, we have another salt deposit um, in, in one of our depots in Maine. We can just move that salt down. However, they were not allowed to do that because uh, we have a law in the U.S., which restricts uh, intercoastal transport, so transport between one U.S. port and another U.S. port, um, to a narrow fleet 
uh, vessels called the Jones Act fleet. The Jones Act um, is a early 1920s law that was intended to resuscitate the, you know, already at the time kind of flagging um, U.S. merchant marine fleet. It turns out, uh, you know, when you trade something globally, uh, it's highly competitive. It's hard to compete. You lose certain market sectors to better competitors. And the, you know, Congress saw fit to try to protect our merchant marine fleet. The result has been essentially smothering it with a pillow. Um, conditions are so soft. Uh, there's so little competition for these intracoastal routes that our merchant marine fleet is small and very old um, and generally operates near capacity, right? So these, these ships are very expensive. And in order to ramp up um, transport on a, a route between two U.S. ports, you have to take away from somewhere else. So basically every, every vessel is spoken for. There's not slack capacity. And they could not find the right kind of vessel to move salt um, in the timeline of, of responding to a storm. So salt sat in Maine uh, while New Jersey drivers, they're bad enough as it is, apologies to anybody from New Jersey here, but like on ice, this is not a good thing. Um, so the, the, the Jones Act, it's a terrible law in the best of times, just raising prices to consumers and failing to accomplish its mission of providing a strong merchant marine fleet. Right? The theory was, okay, in World War I, we needed um, to use uh, French and English ships to, to move our uh, material across the Atlantic. We literally could not project force globally. Apologies if I'm getting my military history wrong at all. Um, so this, this law was passed by Congress to say, okay, well, we're going to protect our merchant marine fleet to make it stronger. Protection does not make things stronger. Protection make th makes things weaker, um, certainly in the long run. And we are, I, I don't know if there's a way to resuscitate that industry, right? It's, it's, it's dead. Um, ships are now made in lots of high-income countries. Um, Japan makes, makes great ocean-going vessels, but we don't have that industry anymore. Um, at least repealing the Jones Act in cases of uh, declared disasters um, would be a minimal step towards uh, allowing some kind of flexibility where a foreign-flagged vessel could come in and move salt from Maine to New Jersey, or in the, the 2017 storms case, could move uh, fuel out of the Gulf Coast. So one of the one of the problems that was affecting um, people in sort of in a secondary way from Hurricane Harvey was that there were plenty of um, refineries on the Gulf Coast and sort of uh, more than Louisiana and not the Texas side that were still uh, able to refine oil products, but they couldn't get them out um, because the um, you know there'd been you know sort of an interruption in service and this this fleet is so constrained it can only move a certain amount of fuel products per day. And so instead of being able to deal with this backlog and get, you know, these, these uh, oil refinery workers back to their jobs and get the uh, refineries working at full capacity, they sort of slowly work off the backlog. President Trump did sign a waiver, uh, a brief waiver after Her Hurricane Harvey and another brief waiver after Irma and Maria. Um, but those should not be, um, you know, contingent on the willingness of the president to sign it. And another case, President Obama refused to sign um, a waiver to allow foreign skimmers to help clean up from the Deepwater Horizon um, disaster in the Gulf. The idea was to keep work in the hands of just the American skimmers um, at the cost of exacerbating whatever environmental damage was caused by that. Um, another form of uh, economic regulation that hurts resiliency uh, is a state-level law, and um, this is something that, that Congress actually sort of foisted on the states back in the 80s, has since removed this mandate, but. Uh, about half the states still have these things 
hanging about certificate of need laws for uh, medical investments. So the, the, the idea in the 80s, I think, was, well, if we don't let people build medical facilities, then they'll spend less on medicine. Um, and this is, uh, I mean, first of all, taking a strong position on a particular elasticity of demand. Um, but second of all, there's a variety of reasons to be concerned about, you know, maybe overspending on, on health care. But the idea that people shouldn't have as much medical service um, does not seem like the right approach to um, concerns about how much we spend on health care. So uh, it was a terrible idea to begin with. The research on it in economics is mixed between those variety of papers that find kind of no effect that these laws really don't do much of anything, um, and then there's you know a, maybe another half of the literature that finds that they do cause harm to consumers and to medical care. So we have a reasonably good chance that people are getting less medical care and spending more per um, medical visit, even if they're spending less overall because of the lack of facilities. So again, lousy law in the best of times. Um, but maybe somewhat, you know, somewhat harmless. Um, you figure out how much, um, how many hospital beds, how many, how much equipment you need. But then when it is disaster strikes, um, especially if it's the kind of thing. And these hurricanes were not largely in that vein. Um, but if you have a disaster that causes a lot of people to need medical attention, you want to have um, spare capacity. In the Puerto Rican situation, where mobility was impaired the issue was that people couldn't get to their medical facilities. So uh, people with, um, who need uh, kidney dialysis on a regular basis were accustomed to traveling to another town to get their dialysis. Uh, Puerto Rico has a certificate of need laws. And instead of having maybe a little bit excess capacity, you know, maybe more dialysis centers than you maybe strictly need, which would have been closer to people in the case that all these roads are shut down, you had dialysis patients who could not physically get to where their dialysis center was suffering, passing away because of the lack of numerous facilities. Obviously, you can take this too far. You can put a dialysis center uh, on every block. That's too many. Um, but at a minimum, you shouldn't be making people who want to invest their own money in medical facilities. So if a, if a hospital says, we want to put a second dialysis center in this city on the other side of town, you don't want to make them go through a government bureaucrat to invest their own money to serve patients. Um, this is a no-brainer. And the remaining states and, and Puerto Rico that have these laws on the books um, should repeal them. And that gives you the spare capacity in the case of a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, where you've got a lot of people suddenly seeking medical care um, and a surge way above normal demand. You want to have spare capacity. And in the case that people can't move around, you want to be able to treat more people uh, locally than, than you know you might gain some efficiency normally from centralizing, but there's a value to decentralizing when um, things go awry. Uh, so those are, those are two of the, the laws that, that I want to highlight most. There's lots of other um, little restrictions that don't do much damage in normal times or where we sort of you figure out a way to work around it or you figure out, okay, you know, we've got all these medical scope of practice laws, which make a lot of sense to have some kind of rules about who can do what. Um, in a disaster, you want to have at least um, prosecutorial forbearance, forbearance towards a nurse who does a doctor's work uh, because of necessity. Uh, fortunately, we largely do that, but there's a, a, a lot of cases on a case-by-case -case basis where states can look at these, the laws that they've put on the books about who can do what, and say, hey, maybe we should just codify that you are not going to be held liable um, in a declared emergency situation for going outside the bounds where the, uh, the doctor can't be there, where your business normally isn't allowed to do X, Y, Z. You're normally not allowed to sell food or water, say, but you have a store that's intact and you say, we're just going to start selling necessities. 
the state isn't going to come in and slap a fine on you because you provided goods to people who needed it. Um, those are the kind of common sense things that even if we want like this regulation um, and it, it improves health in normal times, the risk calculus changes completely in a disaster situation um, and states should be uh, certainly forbearant and um, in some cases provide explicit relief um, so that businesses and individuals can provide services in a way that they normally wouldn't need to because of a disaster. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that concludes the presentation part. Now we have uh, time for a couple of questions if there's any interest from the audience. We have a couple of microphones going around. If um, I'll go to the lady here first. If you could please um, identify yourself and any affiliation you might have and ask a, a pithy question, that'd be very much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Gretchen Sierra Zarita, and I'm a consultant, and I also do a lot of work with Puerto Rico. Um, I will try to be really pithy. I would like Mr. David's and Sarah's comments on two points. Um, everybody would agree with you that um, the, uh, the, the situation with the electrical grid in Puerto Rico is a lack of utter competition. It was a state monopoly, uh, apart from uh, lack of transparency, cronyism, um, politicization of uh, PREPA, which is our electrical agency. Um, to address this issue, two years ago, a regulatory commission uh, was uh, created to regulate PREPA or whatever comes after it because there's nobody advocating for the consumer. Uh, there's nobody to be vigilant of how the contracts are done. Um, you get the picture. The governor is now proposing to privatize uh, this regulatory commission. So I'd like to, you to comment on that point. The other point I would like you to comment on is um, um, there is, and, and I think libertarians would agree with this point of view, there is this uh, desire in Puerto Rico for consumer independence from, uh, from the electrical utilities because we have had this terrible experience. So there's a big push for microgrids, whether it's community-based, people who have money uh, will actually get themselves off the grid. They're doing it already. Uh, uh, nonprofits are trying to figure out how to get houses off the grid for very low cost. The technology's not there, da 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 this desire to be uh, electrically independent, they call it an electrical revision, um, runs at odds with the feasib long-term feasibility of any utility that comes into the country, which is going to, or into the island, who's going to want to, especially if you privatize this, and who's going to want to have those same consumers. How do you reconcile this very uh, uh, understandable and healthy and I'm, I'm going to use the heritage the foundation, the word libertarian desire to be without any energy interference uh, versus the needs of the market that is going to want to come in and, and, and entrap those very same consumers that want to be free. If you could comment. Yeah, I will, I will do my best. We are actually missing our, our energy. We can only fit so many people on the stage. So the energy person is not up here. I was just covering it in general because it was one of the things we couldn't talk about. But I know it's actually in the, in the paper we have a recommendation related to the, the privatization uh, effort that is undergoing. And I think we view that as a positive step in the right direction, so, you're, so to your first point. And that, so that is something I think that we are, are looking towards as a potential solution. Um, I think we... If I remember correctly, there were some problems with it. We, I think we, need, we wanted, I think, bolder reforms in, 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 in the proposal and in the vision that they set forth. But the idea of attracting uh, better capital investment from, by privatizing it is something that we, we call for uh, in the report. Maybe. Yeah, I, I'm not an energy expert, but there's parallels between the need for universal service in tech, for example, 
particularly in, in voice, you know, uh, communications versus competition, you know, among players and, and people wanting to have their own solutions. And, and in that respect, and I think this applies to energy as well, the difference is in, in um, viewing technology as the answer and that you can um, provide service for everyone um, without stringy lines between every house. Um, and, and so the, the idea is that you have, you have to look at um, what makes sense for any particular area um, in terms of whether satellite you know, communications makes more sense or like you said, microgrids versus um, you know, any other variety of, of um, energy um, production and um, distribution. And so um, you, know, it's we, you have to get away from that old monopoly model of wires across the island to every house and look at technology as the answer to both privatization and competition. We have time for one final question. The gentleman here um, with the tie, uh, yes. Hi, uh, I'm Eagles uh, Milbergs. Uh, I'm a uh, co-founder of a nonprofit in Seattle that deals with water technology. So this kind of picks up on the theme of innovation. You've talked about legislation and regulation, and I'd just like you to explore a little bit the role of innovation here. Uh, it seems to me there are just incredible opportunities uh, through, you know, containerized um, energy systems, food systems, medical systems, housing systems, and so on. Uh, you know, big data and analytics, and predictive analytics, et cetera. Um, I could go on and on in terms of what the possibilities are. So the question is, how, what role should the federal government make in investing in R&D and innovation in this area, engaging our entrepreneurs to come up with ways to address these problems, not only in a, in a preventive way, you know, in terms of adaptability and resilience, as well as after such events. I'm sure my co-panelists have ideas as well, but um, I would say it's less about getting the government more involved in R&D as much as getting the government out of the way of R&D and innovation. I think there's a lot of barriers. Um, you know, I didn't really may be able to speak to this more, but there are a lot of barriers to innovation, and and um, that's the problem. Not that we need the government going in. And what the government does tends to do when it when it finances R and D is direct, um, you know, research and development in one particular narrow area to the exclusion of lots of other possibilities. Um, we see this in electric cars, for example. Um, when there may be, you know, many other technologies that are more deserving of our attention and aren't getting it because the government is, you know, um, directing the resources in one particular direction. Sure. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this, this connects to the, the resiliency aspects that I was talking about. If, if we want to get really technical, um, one of the, I think, the, the flaws, the fundamental flaws that came in with the, you know, New Deal era, um, economic planning form of progressivism was a real focus on averages, first moments. Um, and we're talking about disasters, we're really talking about tail risks, second moments. And the idea of maybe something on average doesn't perform any better than what's existing or maybe performs even a little bit worse on average, but when you're out here on the tail, it's actually doing better. And if you, you know, look at a business model, you can have a business model where most of the time you're losing a little bit of money um, and then on certain cases you're able to make, a, uh, make up more than that and so that your, your innovation, your new way of doing things, 
makes sense because of how it behaves in different types of circumstances. The top-down economic planning model really relies on um, a lot of kind of statistical averaging and, and smushing out those tail cases, which in any case, and I, I'm a data guy, they look like noise. It's really hard to distinguish um, cases where something is legitimately different from noise in your data gathering process. Uh, so if you're looking at a, you know, economically planned, and, you know, Steve talked about um, the National Guard, which does a lot of work doing this kind of top-down planning that essentially functions as like a really large corporation would, um, and that's really valuable, and they do a great job of that. But what they're doing is ultimately saying, here are the assets, we know how these behave, and we're looking at how things will perform if, if we stay near our averages. Um, and what top-down planning is never going to be good at is looking at these kind of multi-moment kind of situations where something that doesn't actually perform the best in the base case, right? It's easy to do an innovation that just beats every other innovation. But if you actually want to have a variety of goods on the market, a variety of even service types that serve different markets slightly differently and work better un under slightly different conditions, it's really hard to plan for that. And allowing that to emerge, right? So whether we're um, treating, you know, allowing the private market to provide flood insurance and therefore homeowners in flood-prone areas suddenly get uh, a financial motive to use um, preventive measures and you know, are, are investing in the types of um, home investments that don't make sense for most people that do make sense if you suddenly are facing really high flood insurance rates. Um, those are the kind of things that are going to emerge naturally, and we see those in uh, all, all over the private sector. There's many different types of things that perform slightly differently under different scenarios, um, and that's just a mindset Towards, the, uh, towards approaching problems um, that the government has never been good at and is unlikely to become good at. Great. Can I oh, yep. Real quick, short one. The, you, know, you got two options. You, you got states or you got the feds. The states would love to do more innovation. They have no money. The feds have money, and as Diane pointed, they're not really good at innovation. That's not their thing. They pick a winner, generally not based on any particular knowledge. It's whoever the contracting person was thinks yeah, this is a great idea, and when they send out the, the request for, for uh, uh, proposals, that's, it's written so that there's only one answer. And it, it really, and, and this is not from me being at Heritage, it's from me having been on IBM for a few years, it, it's ridiculous. They, you, if you come in with an innovative solution that's not in the request for proposal, you'll lose, even if, you're, even if your thing is cheaper and better and wonderful. I think um, changing it might be a discussion over coffee yeah. Uh, yeah. afterwards. I'm mindful of the time. We have a very distinguished uh, keynote speaker. I want to be respectful of his time, too. So please uh, join me in, uh, in congratulating this panel for their very informative discussion. Thank you. Thanks, guys and ladies. Thank you. I wasn't the depressing one. Again, I would like to um, thank our, our panelists uh, for that very informative discussion uh, that we just had. And now it is my great honor to welcome uh, Dr. Daniel Kanuski. Thank you so much for coming here today to the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Kanuski is the Deputy Administrator for Protection and National Preparedness at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or like the rest of us call it FEMA. 
Dr. Kanuski was previously Vice President for Global Resilience at AIR Worldwide, a catastrophe risk modeling and consulting services firm. He was also a Center for Cyber and Homeland Security Senior Fellow, where he contributed thought leadership on homeland security and emergency management topics. He previously served as Mission Area Director for Resilience and Emergency Preparedness Response at the Homeland Security Studies and Analysis Institute, a federally funded research and development center serving the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. In the, in the George W. Bush administration, Dr. Kanuski served as Special Assistant to the President for Homeland Security and Senior Director for Response Policy. During this time in office, he oversaw the disaster the, he oversaw the disaster declaration process for over 200 presidentially declared disasters and emergencies. He has served in a number of senior posts in the private sector, public sector, and in academia, uh, focusing on resilience and emergency response. So it is my great honor and pleasure to welcome you here today, sir, to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I'm really happy to be here. Great to see some familiar faces at Heritage and the broader community. Mr. and Sarah, Dr. Bucci, thank you for having me. And uh, Luke, thanks for the, the introduction. So I appreciate the opportunity to come and speak about disasters, uh, specifically the disasters that we experienced in 2017, the hurricanes, wildfires, and everything else you could possibly imagine, it seems, in the six months since I've been at FEMA. Many of the goals and objectives in our newly released strategic plan, which I'll discuss today, align with uh, the report that you just heard the panel discuss, the after the storm disaster response following the hurricanes of 2017 produced by the Heritage Foundation. I'll say quite succinctly that prioritizing mitigation, leveraging the faith-based community, reforming the National Flood Insurance Program, and boosting state capacity to handle disasters, especially those small and mid-sized events, which we can delve into, are all part of our strategic plan. Now, I know you've already discussed many of the lessons, but before I move in the strategic plan, I'd like to share the lessons from my perspective at FEMA. And let me just say before I do that, that I wasn't at FEMA for Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. I, like many of you, was sitting on the sidelines, maybe watching the, the hurricanes come ashore on television. So I'm not here to say firsthand what I saw during Harvey and Irma, but I actually thought that I was gonna miss hurricane season. I thought that Harvey and Irma were the peak of the season and that there would be more, no more hurricanes. I would arrive at FEMA and focus on recovery. Well, instead, as all of us know, Hurricane Maria came ashore. In fact, it came ashore the day I became acting deputy administrator. So now that you know my perspective, I'm gonna go ahead and put the FEMA disasters into context. Now let's talk about Maria and consider that Maria uh, was the largest air and sea mission in FEMA history. It was also the largest commodity mission in FEMA history. As our partners at the Department of Health and Human Services know, it was the largest medical response mission ever. 
as our colleagues at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers know, it was the largest power mission ever, again, on U.S. soil. So now we're looking at some of the lessons from Maria specifically, and that's helping to drive our strategic priorities going forward. So I'd like to preview a few of those lessons with you today, and I welcome your feedback on these during the Q&A session. So without any further ado, number one, logistics. While each of these disasters had its own unique characteristics and logistical challenges, Puerto Rico by far was the biggest logistical challenge. Now, part of this is certainly because it's an island. It's a thousand miles away from the US mainland. And the scale and duration of the life-saving and life-sustainment efforts on Puerto Rico stretched FEMA thin. Not only were we supporting uh, an area for hours and days, it stretched into weeks and months. That's unprecedented. So plans and procedures for resource movement, transportation logistics, including last mile delivery, again, from staging areas to municipalities, in the case of Puerto Rico's case, 78 municipalities. So our 12 regional staging areas had to feed 78 municipalities who, again, generally it's the, uh, a local responsibility to distribute those commodities to their citizens. Number two, diminished capacity at the local level. So in addition to those logistical challenges, getting commodities to the island, which by the way, there was always food and water on the island. The challenge wasn't getting them to the regional staging areas, it was getting them to those municipalities. And again, as I had mentioned, the FEMA plans, the plans that were developed together uh, with stakeholders, in this case, Puerto Rico, years before the disaster struck, had this, the local governments moving commodities from those 12 regional staging areas to the 78 municipalities. But because of the devastating impact of, of the hurricane, local uh, leaders were unable to muster an effective response. Therefore, FEMA had to fill some of that role. It's a very uncomfortable position for FEMA to be in. Because let me be clear, FEMA is not a first responder. FEMA is there to support, not supplant, state and local authorities. It's there to support the Commonwealth, the governor, the local governments and the local elected officials in their disaster response activities. Well, we learned that even though FEMA is not a first responder, we could be thrust into those roles like commodities distribution and need to be prepared to assume more of that burden in the future. Number three, survivable communications. There were challenges getting a clear picture of what was going on in Puerto Rico, no doubt. The reason that we lacked situational awareness was because communications were out. Communications were out because the infrastructure was badly damaged or destroyed. So we've, we had, I would say, admittedly, Band-Aid solutions. Well, if the communications are out, what do we do? Well, we can get satellite phones to the area, and we did. We put a satellite phone in the hands of every one of the 78 mayors. But I call that a Band-Aid solution because that's not a robust communications mechanism, is it? Just communicating one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. What we need to make sure for the future is that we work 
in lockstep with the private sector to get communications back online. Because without communications, there cannot be an effective response. Number four, sheltering and housing survivors. Sheltering and housing survivors was a huge challenge, not just in Puerto Rico, it was a huge challenge in Texas, for example. It was such a big challenge in Texas that following Hurricane Harvey, we took the unprecedented step of going to the governor and saying, we think that you could better manage the housing recovery here in Texas than we can at FEMA. And to the credit of the governor, Governor Abbott stepped up to the plate and said, I agree, we can manage. If you fund us, if you support us, we can manage our housing recovery. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Number five, adapting to long-term infrastructure outages. Again, we're not talking about hours and days without power or communications or water. We're talking about days, weeks, and months without this lifeline infrastructure, that infrastructure that all of us rely on for our daily living. That is not something that we as a federal government had planned for. In most disaster responses, the infrastructure is resilient. It's modern. You end up replacing a few lines and the linemen and the equipment can, can come from surrounding states. Obviously, for the reasons we just mentioned, logistically, logistically, as well as the fact that, did you know that we exhausted the domestic stockpile for power poles? There just weren't any more power poles available in the United States. And then figure how you get those power poles once they have been manufactured to an island a thousand miles away. There are huge challenges. Anyways, we need to look back and say, what would we do in a similar situation in the future with a long-term infrastructure outage. Number six, surging resources and staff. So as I mentioned, these disasters stretched FEMA's resources to the breaking point. And to a greater extent than in previous disasters, each of these disasters impacted the other. It wasn't like Hurricane Maria just happened in isolation. It happened on the heels of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, and oh, by the way, the California wildfires, which were absolutely catastrophic. I don't know if any of you saw the you know, friends and families or saw firsthand. It was absolutely devastating what happened in California. And would you believe that even prior to Hurricane Harvey coming ashore, there were 32 open disasters in this country? What I mean by an open disaster, I mean FEMA personnel were deployed to 32 different disasters around the United States supporting recovery efforts. So now I hope you have a little bit better context about why FEMA resources were stretched then. Now, we didn't just sit back and say, oh my God, we're stretched then, we can't respond. Of course we have to respond. We have to respond to all three of those catastrophic hurricanes. So we had to think a little innovatively. We went, by the time Maria came ashore, we had gone to the Secretary of Homeland Security and said, we need more staff. We need more personnel to deploy. They don't have to be emergency managers, but they have to be able to, to support our efforts. Let's say uh, interfacing with disaster survivors, signing up disaster survivors for individual assistance, which by the way is normally done electronically for obvious reasons without power and communications. That couldn't 
be done in the, in the immediate aftermath of Maria. So we literally needed volunteers to take clipboards and register disaster survivors for assistance. Well, our call was answered. Not, uh, thanks again to the Secretary of Homeland Security, not only was it the Department of Homeland Security with its components, particularly uh, TSA, for example, many TSA employees were deployed to disasters uh, in the 2017 uh, hurricanes uh, specifically to support disaster recovery efforts. But not only that, we had 15 other federal departments and agencies that also answered the call. And I'll give you an example. So following, the, following the Hurricane Maria, I went to Puerto Rico. And in Puerto Rico, I visited the island of Vieques. In Vieques, there's one hospital. That one hospital serves the entire population of Vieques. We had federal personnel deployed there to care for patients and, and try to get that hospital back online. The individual who took me around uh, was wearing like, fatigues and was very knowledgeable, obviously a federal employee, a federal badge. And at the end of a, a two-hour visit there, where he told me in great depth the challenges that this hospital faced and is facing and the, the actions that the federal government is taking to support it. I asked him, oh, so you're from HHS, right? He said, no, I'm from NASA. <laughs> that, that's probably the definition of whole of government, isn't it? Now, uh, land use planning, number seven, and finally, the importance of land use planning and building codes cannot be overstated. We have to obviously encourage development out of high hazard areas, but it's not just where we build, it's also how we build. Buildings need to be built to a standard that can withstand disasters that we know are not only possible, but likely. I'd like to move on to our strategic priorities at this point. Now that you've heard me lay bare some of the challenges that we face, I'd like to hit on our three strategic priorities. And I put them up on a slide here for those that can see it. Number one is fostering a culture of preparedness. Number two is readying the nation for catastrophic disasters. And number three is reducing complexity of FEMA programs. Under number one, culture of preparedness. Under cultural preparedness, individual preparedness is really key. Because we need to acknowledge that during a disaster, it's really the individual that's a first responder. It's not a government agency. It's us as citizens caring for ourselves, our families, our community, helping each other, neighbor helping neighbor. To best empower individuals, though, to take on these roles following a disaster is to empower them ahead of time with skills and information needed to help themselves and help others. So think about it. How many of us in this room know how to shut off the water to our house? That can make a big difference. What about shutting off the gas? Again, simple, but big return on investment. What about your neighbors? Do you know to check on your neighbors? Do you know which neighbors might need assistance? after disaster. Or CPR, how many of us know CPR? All of these are life-saving skills that go from very simple, but you gotta know what your shutoff valve is, to something you could probably learn in a few hours, like CPR. We need 
individuals to feel empowered to help themselves, help others. And we, FEMA, we, the federal government, we need to make it as easy as possible for them to learn those skills. But it's not just about those maybe obvious uh, points I raised. Those, by the way, you can go to ready.gov and learn more about how to equip yourself with those practical skills. But we need to open a whole new dialogue in individual preparedness. And you're going to think I'm crazy because I'm at FEMA and I'm going to talk about financial preparedness. I believe taxes are due pretty soon. I'm sure finances are on all of our minds. But what I want to talk to you about right now is closing the insurance gap. So insurance is not usually a front burner issue for FEMA. And to the extent it is, it's about flood insurance. But let me be clear. When I talk about insurance, I mean all types of insurance. Property and casualty insurance for your, your property and its contents, for example, your car. So how do we discuss the insurance industry and FEMA? We talk about the insurance gap. What, what exists right now is a gap between what's insured and what's insurable. And that gap is enormous, both because we don't realize, we as Americans don't realize that we are uninsured or underinsured, or we willingly decide not to take insurance out on our home, thinking, what's the worst that can happen? It'll save me a few hundred dollars a year to not have it. But unfortunately, when the worst thing happens, you are completely at risk, and FEMA, with its programs, our programs, specifically our individual assistance programs, are not going to make you whole. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you lose everything, no matter what I want to do as a FEMA official, I cannot make you whole by statute. So let's use a specific example. We talked about Hurricane Harvey in Texas. Let's zoom in on Harris County, Texas, which bore the brunt of much of the flooding that occurred as a result of the hurricane. If you were a survivor of that disaster and you didn't have insurance, FEMA's individual assistance programs would provide cash to you to help you support your recovery. The average payout for our FEMA individual assistance program for those that lacked insurance was $4,000. Would $4,000 cover your home or the contents of your home? If you lost everything? Now compare that to someone who had a national flood insurance program policy. The average payout compared to the $4,000 uninsured that you would get through FEMA and the national flood insurance program is huge. The average payout, $110,000. So for that individual who wasn't willing to let uh, the risk be assumed to be zero. Again, many, many of, uh, of those impacted by the flooding of Hurricane Harvey were outside the floodplain. They weren't required to have flood insurance. They made a proactive decision to take on the risk as an individual, to address that risk, to have that risk transferred off the back of themselves and the government, and that risk was transferred to the insurance market. The bottom line on flooding, by the way, any house can flood. It doesn't matter if you're in the floodplain or not. Many of the homes that were destroyed during Hurricane Harvey 
were flooded well outside the floodplain, well outside the floodplain that required you to have flood insurance. Now I'm going to wrap up on, on preparedness by saying mitigation is a huge priority for ours. In fact, mitigation and insurance are hand in glove, right? If we can reduce the impact of disasters by investing now, we will reduce the cost to us as FEMA, us as citizens, and most importantly, to disaster survivors if we can mitigate those risks ahead of time. If you needed any other example on investing in mitigation, then think about what the National Institute of Building Sciences recently came out with. You're probably familiar, for those of you in the emergency management community, with a number one to four. One dollar invested now in mitigation will save you four dollars in disaster costs when it happens. But the new study by the National Institute of Building Sciences, they updated the previous one, says it's not one to four, it's one to six. So if you want to make an investment ahead of time that will reduce potential loss of property and lives, invest in mitigation. That's what that study tells us. So we are going to make a major focus on that at FEMA. Now the other two priorities, we're getting short on time here, so readiness for catastrophic disasters. I'm very passionate about preparedness, as you can tell, by the way. Readiness for catastrophic disasters. Let me just hit one key point here. FEMA cannot, cannot be in the situation that we were last year with open disasters all around the country, with three catastrophic hurricanes, with catastrophic wildfires, and have all of those be of equal importance to FEMA. We need our resources, specifically our personnel, ready to go for a catastrophic incident. We need our plans to be focused on the catastrophic. We need our people ready to be deployed. We need our, our operational funding to be focused on catastrophic disasters. In other words, our annual budget, not the disaster relief fund. Our operational budget needs to be focused on the catastrophic. Let me give you one statistic here. Did you know that 80%, this is according to the GAO, 80% of all presidentially declared disasters are under $41 million? $41 million in most states is a very small disaster. Now, some states, admittedly, it's a larger disaster. But what we can all agree on is that they are not catastrophic in the sense that these multi-billion dollar disasters, as we experienced this year, are. So, remember the example I gave you on the Texas housing strategy where the governor stepped up to the plate and said, let me manage my housing recovery? FEMA continues to fund that program, but that governor manages that housing program in a way that FEMA probably couldn't. So for the future, we're going to take that model a step further. We're going to say, for the future, here's a slogan for you, we want federally supported, aka federally funded, state-managed, locally executed recovery for those smaller disasters. For those disasters, and I'm going to use this statistic, under $41 million, we think that's a reasonable threshold for states to say, you know what? We should be ready to assign our personnel to own that recovery with federal funding supporting that effort. We think that that is eminently reasonable. And for those smaller states, that I mentioned, because not every state is the same. I mean, Texas is a big state. I get that. For those smaller states, we're going to be working with them to find out how we can help build up the capacity of those states pre-disaster so that in the future, 
even they can manage a relatively uh, mid-sized disaster, you know, 41 million or less, and do it with federal funding, but with their personnel. Finally, reducing complexity. This is always a crowd pleaser. Who doesn't want to reduce the complexity of FEMA programs? I do, just working at FEMA with our two or 300 IT systems. And we have hundreds of systems that I would love to see reduced. But more importantly, to the disaster survivor. Following a, a disaster, oftentimes a, a disaster survivor is confronted with not just a FEMA employee, but multiple FEMA employees, and frankly, multiple employees from out, uh, throughout the entire federal government to talk about their particular recovery programs. And it's not fair to a disaster survivor to not have a single point of contact. A disaster survivor shouldn't be able, shouldn't be forced to navigate the federal bureaucracy following a disaster. This is a very difficult time for anybody who's lived through a disaster, obviously. And we need to make it as simple as possible for them to access applicable federal programs. Disasterassistance.gov is a good start, but we need to get to a 2.0 system because we still have too many inspections, right? So there's an, a flood insurance inspection and an individual ins assistance inspection that are separate inspections from FEMA. And there's God knows how many other inspections and federal employees that have to be involved in a complex recovery. We need to reduce that substantially. We have a couple of pilots that were proved successful uh, this hurricane season, and we're gonna leverage those for the future. So in conclusion, thank you for your attention, both for hearing me talk about what we learned, and I hope you'll embrace some of those, uh, those lessons, and I also hope you'll embrace some of our vision going forward. At the strategic level, those three strategic goals, I think are certainly embraced by FEMA, We've gotten strong buy-in from state and local governments who also want to see that. And we look forward to working with all stakeholders and, and uh, all of you on making sure that we're a more prepared and resilient nation. With that, I'm happy to take a couple questions. Thank you. We actually have time for one pithy question, very pithy. And the gentleman here, since the lady already asked a question in the first session, I'll ask the gentleman here to. Uh... Uh, yes, uh, Dave Smith, Dallas, Texas. Um, you know, I used to live in Harris County. I just moved out a couple of years ago, get ready to move back. And what shocked me was um, there were only about 35,000 structures out of 1.7 million in Harris County that actually had insurance. And the way the FEMA has structured the uh, the Congress has structured the program. You know, my car is insured. Thank you for that correction. Yeah. My car is insured when it's sitting in my uninsured, you know, flood-prone house. And if I'm a renter, my household goods are insured in the flood-prone house mm -hmm. through my regular policy. So why don't we slice and dice this a little better because you seem, we seem unable to sell $400 policies protect you for flood, you know, to include contents, you know what I mean, or, or somehow uh, – uh, get get broader coverage through our normal policy. So I, I agree completely. I mean, the administration position is that we need to reform the National Flood Insurance Program. FEMA, unfortunately, cannot do that on its own. It does take, as you correctly noted, Congress to change the statute, to give us the ability to have risk-adjusted premiums paired with an affordability program for those that can't afford it. It took Congress to give us the authority to have a reinsurance program which has been very successful. 
saved the American taxpayers almost a billion dollars last year because we transferred some of the NFIP program risk to the private reinsurance market. We need to do more like that, and we need to have as our end goal to have a vibrant private flood insurance market. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kanuski, for coming here today and giving us the very interesting remarks, especially putting a bit of color and context on the situation FEMA was already facing leading up to the challenges you faced over the summer. Um, please join me again in thanking our speaker. And that concludes today's program. As a reminder, this will be online at heritage.org, I think, almost immediately, but if not, for sure, 24 hours. And you can get a copy of the latest report just outside. Thank you.